Welcome to the Payroll Podcast with your host, Nick Day. Find out what it takes to truly discover what it takes to elevate your career within payroll as we meet with the industry leaders who are shaping the industry for tomorrow. Uh, of course, we've now all heard the delayed autumn statement from our latest Chancellor of the Exchequer, Jeremy Hunt. Now, when the Chancellor of the Exchequer makes a fiscal statement to Parliament, whether it's called a budget, a mini budget or an autumn statement, I think we can all agree it can be pretty hard to keep track of all the changes that come in both immediately, the changes that are coming soon, and of course, the changes that are on the horizon, which is why we have a wonderful panel of experts for you today on today's show, Payroll Question Time. They're here to keep you all in the know, because let's be honest, this year has not been normal. I think the fact we've had four chancellors and three fiscal statements probably confirms that. Now, of course, the challenge now is identifying what, if anything, a quasi quadrant proposal have survived, as well, of course, as understanding the steps that Jeremy Hunt has taken to fill the holes in the government coffers that the ill-fated September plan for growth has helped to create. Well, today we attempt, at least from a payroll-related perspective, to summarise these main changes, as well as understand what has survived and what has been cancelled from the September plan. Hence, we have our panel of experts you see in front of you to help you out. But of course, we won't just be talking about the autumn statement. We'll also be helping you all to prepare for all of your festive payroll considerations from gifts to parties. So I'm going to introduce you to myself. My name is Nick Day. I'm the host of the Payroll Podcast. I'm a Reward 300 mem member and award winner, and I'm founder of JGA Recruitment, which is a specialist payroll recruitment firm. I've been in the payroll industry now for 20 years. I don't know where the time has gone. I'm still loving it. Can't wait to get involved in today's session. And you'll be excited to hear that today we will be making a bit of a festive special of today's episode. We're going to be talking about tax concessions on gifts and seasonal workers, holiday pay and more, the autumn statement takeaways. We've got a few hot topics if you find time to get there. And of course, our very own q and I'm delighted to see we already have our first question come in. Uh, hello, my company wishes to gift all employees a £200 John Lewis voucher for Christmas. Am I right in thinking this would be covered by a PSA and would therefore have no P11D implication? I wonder if you can take that, Richard. Well, yeah, only if it's in a PSA, though, is really the answer, I guess. There's nothing to stop the employer giving a gift and paying the tax and NI on it, um, as long as the rules that are applicable to PSAs are met. So. Uh, I can't see there being any issue with it. Um, it's all about the availability, et cetera, that would need to be considered. Yeah, absolutely agree. Well, let's jump into this subject then. I'm going to come over to you, Simon. Perhaps you can give us a little bit of an overview of some of the tax concessions that we can consider as we approach the uh, the festive uh, break. Yeah, sure. Well, the, the main one we'll be familiar with is social function and some parties. So there is an allowance of £150 and there were some concessions for remote parties that came in for COVID. So potentially there's an element of can you send someone a hamper? Well, if you're doing it as part of the social function and parties, you can, yes, tax-free. And we can all watch each other eat over Zoom. Um, that sort of thing is permitted. Uh, as long as it didn't exceed the 150, that was allowed. Now, if you're just sending a hamper itself, different because it's not part of your social function and parties. So there is some care there. Um, going back a little bit to the question you asked um, Richard, if I may, that you can't just add things to PSAs retrospectively. You do need to have made the arrangements 
before so just be careful with that so yeah if it's an annual event it's open to all employees that can be location based so it could be open to all lo employees in a particular location and it costs no more than 150 pound per head and that per head doesn't just count employees it counts all attendees so spouses went along or children you can count them in that head count as long as that divides down to no more than 150 pounds uh, and it's uh, and that can build up to a number of events through the year uh, but it can't exceed on the on the consolidated amount as long as it doesn't exceed 150 pounds that's all tax and ni free uh, but uh, as I say if it hits 151 you've just made it taxable for everybody and uh, you have to P11D or, or um, I'm not sure if you get away with PSA on that you may be able to so just be careful on some of the costs you don't have to report anything to HMRC uh, on the exemption but you do if it's breached you can have multiple events through the year so you can have oh, I don't know Eid or uh, we've had the American celebrations yesterday of uh, um, etc you can have other things but the conglomerate in a tax year can't exceed the 150 uh, just be careful with salary sacrifice arrangements there may have been elements of well actually if you give up 100 pounds we'll run a party and use it that way so we all save a bit of money of course that would be captured by opera a little bit these days and you'd have to tell people how much um, is actually involved and so be careful on those sorts of arrangements but can a party be run absolutely now on gifts now if gifts are from third party and don't exceed i think um, just trying to think what the value was and it's escaped my mind i think it's 250 pounds is it from memory it's from a third party that don't relate really to the employment you know, i don't know a customer gives you something uh, etc there are exemptions there but if it's from the employer uh, you're actually going into tax and national insurance sort of territory so it can't be given for service uh, and it can't be yes. given as bribe so there's that um just really on the back of Simon, just finishing off that one as well which is where we see some real big issues the 150 pound per head is absolutely right for anyone but that's the total cost so people forget that they might have their staff come by taxi they may put them up overnight all of that stuff is cumulative within the 150 pounds uh, and that's the bit that usually gets ignored when they're thinking well you know we've given them a 150 pound party but they've actually spent 270 quid because they bought hired them a suit and put them in a taxi and all that kind of good stuff as well so it's really key that employers remember it's the cumulative value of the event and that can include the cost of the venue so uh, something that must be thought about yeah there's been a cumulative question here. Now, you may have already answered it, but I'm not a payroll expert, so I'm going to ask the question anyway. And to be fair, the question was posed before we finished Simon's uh, discussion. But it says, I know you can gift £50 at Christmas without any tax implications, but is there any exemptions or anything else we can do? Am I right in thinking it's cumulative for the year or can we give multiples of £50 to an employee in the year without it being a tax benefit? What's the limit on the number of multiples we can give? Uh, bearing in mind the vouchers won't be exchangeable for cash and would be for food or petrol. You happy for me to say that? Or do you want it, Sam? You Which go ahead, it? Richard. You got there before me, so go for so it. Trivial, trivial benefits. Um, yes, it, there is no limit to the number of um, trivials that can be received in a year. Um, maximum of £50 or less can't be exchangeable for cash. 
very important caveats though number one is it can't be in any way preempted e.g contractual or in the terms and conditions that they receive something um so if it says that you will receive a 50 pound voucher within the terms and conditions then that's out straight away the other key element especially with vouchers is um like um, benefits accumulate so if you've given a voucher early in the year for something else a lot of employers have given vouchers for um life help um or wellness during the year if you've given multiple vouchers again they accumulate so you might be given a 50 pound voucher for christmas you may have given them a 50 pound voucher three months ago towards their heating bill vouchers are vouchers are vouchers and if they go over 50 as cumulative the whole value becomes taxable um, and that's very important what's the maximum value it's just so that i'm clear here before so it's, it's, it's 50 pounds or less for a form of benefit each in its own right so you could give them a bunch of flowers you can give them a 50 pound voucher you can give them whatever you like but if they're like benefits then the total value of all of them is cumulative for the tax year and that's very key yeah so what and you're suggesting i think richard is it can't be the same thing all the time uh but you can swap around to different things so it could be a bottle of champagne it could be a voucher it could be i don't know a box of chocolates it could be something else but um uh things like that to fall under the trivial benefit if it's actually we're going to give you 50 pounds worth of vouchers every week there's kind of well that kind of breaks it could, yeah could, and if, could, uh, if i may oh sorry nick <laughs> we're also eager to answer these questions i know i was going to create a scenario based on simon's responses if i'm a client i wants to give um, one of my employees, a bottle of champagne, a box of chocolates, and a voucher for fifty pounds—all of three separate things within the same month, but done separately. Would that get away through the trivial benefit system because the total value would be greater, but individually they're less? Would that work? It could. I what I was wanting to say was usually trivial benefits—you'd normally see it triggered by an event, so the birth of a child, Christmas, Easter, a marriage a celebration for a divorce perhaps. So normally it's triggered by an event. It can't be given or provided in recognition of services. So for an employer to give a trivial benefit or a gift, it cannot be done in recognition of, you know, Richard, you've done an amazing job this month, have a bottle of champagne. That would not fall into the trivial benefit rules. So as long as each gift is 50 pounds or less and it's essentially triggered by an event then i would say that that would be okay there is however a cap for directors of close companies and without looking at the legislation essentially a close company is where there's a um where it's ran by five or less directors essentially in that case there is a cap of 300 pounds for a tax year so that's okay. the cap you need to be mindful of. So a company could, because it's an event, I'm just throwing it out there, and please challenge me if I'm wrong, just so we get some clear understanding here. A company wants to give every one of their employees a secret Santa gift, the, the event being Christmas, and the, each gift in each box is less than £50. That would, that would wash. That would be correct. That's good. Fine. 
Okay, I think that covers. Hopefully, that covers that question. Yeah. Uh, I've had one other question but, as well. It's gonna, I'm going to challenge this. We talked a little about PSAs already. Uh, last question that's come in so far. Uh, my company wishes to reimburse all employees for their children's Christmas gifts up to twenty pounds. These are gifts that have been purchased by the employees directly. Can this be included in a PSA? We have a PSA agreement in place for non-cash gifts for flowers and taxis. I, sounds like living support or the sounds of things, but yeah, I would say no um and the reason for that is one it's cash and two it's actually a pecuniary liability so what that means in layman's terms is if i let's use that example i go and buy my children um uh two action men for example i put it on my credit card i've paid that it's my personal private debt essentially if my employer then decides to pay my credit card bill on my behalf or give me any amount of cash, that amount would have to go through the payroll and be liable to tax and national insurance. Because it's earnings, someone has to pay the tax and NI on it. An employer could gross that value up. So in effect, you might pay £250 gross. So someone receives the £200 net in their back pocket but trivial benefits and PSAs would not cover that. It would need to be treated as earnings through the payroll. So the yeah, easier way to think about that would be to give everyone a £20 gift at Christmas as yeah. a gift to the event, and you can kind of do it with a voucher, and they can buy what they want through the voucher system, in theory. Yeah. Or the employer would buy two action men for every employee, which would be amazing. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, flip, it flips it from benefit to expense, Nick, so cash is king. Okay, really interesting. So what have, what have we not brought up here? We've got a few things here. We've got, um, we've talked about gifts, uh, annual functions. What about some of the employment laws on parties perhaps getting a little bit out of hand? I know we've discussed this on a, an annual episode a year ago, which I remember quite well. Simon, I wonder if you can remember those examples. Um, well, I'll probably say no, because, um, you know, I, I might have been on the meeting, but was a listening. I was so nervous. Now, let's talk a little bit about then. Uh, there are some considerations for employers in relation to um, office parties and other work related social events. Sometimes some untoward things happen at them and there's an element of whose liability is it. And uh, and they it brings into play something called vicariously liable. So actually, the employer could be liable for some of the activity employees do whilst drunk. So it's an element of uh, uh, knowing uh, where liabilities fall. And so it's not an element of, well, we'll just send everybody, we'll meet at local pubs of work, do have a party, and we're not really responsible for action or activity of those that attend, actually the employer could be responsible for the actions of those attend. So there is an element of distinguishing between social events where there will probably be vicarious liability and social events that are unlikely to result in vicarious liability. So there are differences. So it's just knowing what they are and, uh, and also taking reasonable steps. So allowing people to know what the rules of play are and what activity, if it's considered inappropriate potentially are and how they they should really behave whether a company's got um, some sort of uh, uh, policies on behavior alcohol uh, use drugs etc and just considering that complete uh, give compl 
uh, I'm going to say, to get the words out of my mouth, clear policy on the standards of behaviour expected at office parties and what kinds of behaviour are unacceptable. Uh, and at the uh, party itself, there is potentially having someone designated. So they're responsible potentially when issues arise. So that they're looking for them and dealing with them and saying, no, come on, mate, I'm going to pull you aside. Uh, your behavior needs to um, calm down or you, it's time you went home. So there is an element of responsibility and take uh, uh, steps to protect harassment because these are sometimes elements where people get a little bit inhibited. Their um, inhibitions are taken away, they feel more relaxed, and so they may actually go into conduct that wouldn't normally be them. And so it's an element of being prepared to uh, have measures. Hopefully, nothing of that happens, but just being prepared if it does. Because, And then there's an element of if something did happen, how does that relate to the employment? Are they now in a position of gross misconduct, um, etc.? Then you're into notice, contract arrangements, all sorts of things. Uh, that, those are just the initial thoughts. I think those are probably some of the areas that we've covered before, Nick. I would agree. Well, what I'm going to do is take us back to uh, to viewer questions. We've got about six or seven that have come in. So we thought festivities may uh, may throw a few things. And I think some of them may have already been answered already, but I'm going to just yeah. run through with them so everyone feels like they've been been heard and we've got every clarification on everything. Uh, first one here. Um, would the, um, I, apologies, I hope I'm reading this correctly because I'm not a payroll person. So would the title of MX be accepted on the FPS to the revenue? That's a capital M, small x, be accepted on the FPS to the revenue. In, in relation to the title on the FPS record, absolutely, you can put whatever title you like. So it's, um, I think, 17 characters of any alpha. Uh, I think the first character has to be alpha. Others might even accept numeric, but I can't remember on the title field. But the, um, you don't even have to have any title. So um, the answer is yes. Now, can you have a gender of X on the FPS? The answer is no. So their gender must be male or female. You cannot be gender neutral on the FPS. If you put or left it off, your entire FPS submission would be rejected for everyone, even if it was only one person that was requesting that. So if you attempted to send an FPS file to HMRC with one being some other character than F or M, uh, or blank or missing, uh, the entire submission would be rejected. They wouldn't take it for any employee at all. So uh, gender has to be there. Generally, it's not gender of selection either. So there's some limitations there. Generally, it's their taxation gender that's required. Saying that, if you put an opposite gender to your actual tax position, would HMRC reject? the submission they wouldn't they would accept it however gender recognition and gender choice are different things nick so i i may be uh, male for tax purposes i can choose to be nothing or female for hr employment purposes they're two different things two different statutes for gender pay gap reporting i can be something else than my tax gender but for the FPS, it should really be the tax gender. That's the thoughts. And that relates to and the title. You can be anything you like. So I, I could be Lady Simon Parsons if I wish to. Um, Excellent. I can, okay. It wouldn't reject. Regularly are, Simon. Regularly are. <laughs> 
I yes. think we've answered the next question, Richard. I'll come to you just for pure clarification. Uh, what about the £150 per head exemption for Christmas parties? Does this still stand? Yes, we'll be spoke about. Yeah. yeah, I think that might be somebody joined slightly after we've gone through that uh, motion. Anyway. Um, yes. Got one here that says, um, good afternoon. My question is IT related. Uh, in fact, I'm not going to leave that one for a moment because we've got a subject in this coming up. So let me go to the next question. I will come back to you and Jana. Sorry about that. Uh, but this one actually, do the provision of benefit portals like Reward Gateway attract any tax implications? Um, I'm guessing is that like a high street discount type yes. of scenario? Kind of, yeah. So uh, we've had questions around this in the past. If it comes under £50, for example, so the provision of an employee using that portal, if that falls under £50, can it be deemed to be a trivial benefit? It then comes along to the question that, uh, well, the, the topic that Richard covered earlier is that it cannot be contractual. So if it sets out in an employee handbook that every year you get access to this portal, you're implying that that is a contractual obligation that you receive that. So I would say you'd really need to, we'd need to know a little bit more to be able to give advice, but it would probably be a taxable benefit. So it'd either go on a P11D, you'd report it through the payroll, or it could be covered as a P11A. Okay, great. And the last question I've got here on the Christmas festivities, I think we've got a number of questions here related to holiday pay. So the reason I haven't asked those yet for those waiting, uh, we've got a few grouped together here. We'll get to those in one go. Uh, last sort of a Christmas related question for now on the voucher side of things. If an employee is on benefits and wants a number of £50 vouchers rather than a cost of living bonus, would this be okay? We're falling into the cumulative value again, Nick, that we spoke about earlier on, because we've had this question a lot they don't want a £300 bonus because it'll put them over their limit on their on their universal credit. Um, it, it, no, you, there would be a liability. Obviously, the option for the employer is to gross it up as, or gross the vouchers up and pay the tax and then on their behalf. But it certainly can't go under trivial if they're going to be multiples. Yeah, but we're potentially. Yeah, I'm thinking potentially if it was reported as a payroll item, it wouldn't necessarily appear and as earnings for universal credit purposes, but it is earnings for tax and potentially national and I think, insurance. I think where they're going, Simon, is rather than give them a bonus as pay, yes. giving them the vouchers. Something else. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and that's right, where it starts to get, because that could fall under opera as well, couldn't it, Roger? Yeah. We've got a lot of questions that I don't want to uh, overlook in relation to holiday pay. We're going to get there. So before we do, let's just quickly run our uh, our second poll. It just, just closes off the session here on, on gifts and vouchers and things like that. Second poll is this. What will you be gifting your staff this year? Food hampers, vouchers, other gifts or nothing? So while we're waiting for you to put your fingers on the answer that best corresponds to you, I'm going to just ask one of these questions that have come in. Uh, in fact, I think it's the last question related to festivities that have come in. Um, it's going to make a statement here. It says, Reward Gateway charges a setup fee, but an annual fee uh, were quotes for three to four K for 200 employees. I think that just links back to the Reward Gateway piece you were talking about there, Sam. Um, so just, just finish off that point there from, from Emma. Uh, so let's go back into I've got a, I'm going to ask a question here then just for a moment. Um, has anyone listening online changed their holiday pay calculations from the percentage method to the calendar method 
for their casual workers um, um, slash bank workers? If so, can they tell me if they are using software to do this or Excel slash manual, etc.? Hashtag stressed payroller. <laughs> oh, bless them. <laughs> You're not the only one. That's the only peace of mind I can give you. You will not be the only stressed payroller out there. <laughs> Who would like to take on the, uh, I guess, the question? I don't know if, if, if it's a common thing to change holiday calculations for the percentage method to the calendar method for, for casual workers. Is that is that normal? Is that it's something more, it's more down to obviously the recent case that uh, solidified the whole principle of averaging. Um, obviously, Leslie Brazell um, against Harper Trust has been the highest profile element of this. Um, and it, it's the principle of the employee receiving a 5.6 weeks holiday, which is their right. But secondly, having it calculated against what's stated in the Employment Rights Act, um, because there can obviously be quite a large variance. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah, and, so, uh, since April, just think since April 2020, the Employment Rights Act requires a 52 paid week average, excluding zero weeks for Great Britain. It's still 12 weeks in Northern Ireland, if unless the Northern Ireland individual is contracted under a Great Britain contract. So that's changed. Before that, it was a 12-week average, which was part of the Brazil case. But the 12.07% has been declared by the Supreme Court as never being lawful. So it was never uh, offered or available under law at all. It's always been the averaging method. So a number of uh, companies will have operated the 1207, but many don't and never did and did the 12-week averaging. And some still probably still do the 12-week. The challenge with holiday pay is based on uh, when you work and not when you're paid. So there are some challenges there, but many do offer it. And certainly in our pay solutions, we do offer a, a capability of average holiday pay uh, capability. Okay. Great. And just a quick comment here before we get the poll results, which just says, uh, Simon, thank you. I did look for the specification for the FPS, but I lost the will. Good to know there is no, uh, <laughs> there is no link to male and female and titles. Thank you, Denise, for your comment there. But let's have a look at those uh, these poll results. And Sam, I'm going to All come right. back to you again if I can. Nothing. 70%. Is that a surprise to you in the comment world we're living in or is that a little bit disappointing? Do you know what? I actually think... Throughout the cost of living crisis, we've got to remember that employers are also going to be feeling the pinch. It's sure. not just employees, it's employers. So, yes, it's unfortunate, but it doesn't come as a surprise to me, if I'm completely honest, Nick. I was expecting that, really. Um, everyone's trying to claw back a bit this year, aren't they? Indeed. Well, maybe we'll see that that voucher statistic rise on the end of this uh, this show now that people are a little bit more familiar with what we can and cannot gift. I personally am a big fan of that secret Santa idea of giving all your employees a little gift at the start of the, the year under the gifting rules, whether or not the, the payroll people that are listening to this can uh, encourage or persuade their business owners to do the same is another, another question entirely. Well, let's jump into the next subject. We've got a, a number of questions that are, that are coming in at the minute in relation to holiday pay, which Simon's just um, given us a bit of an overview with. Um, I'm going to run through the questions first, if we can, because I think it does tackle some of the topics in our subject areas anyway. Uh, first one comes in from Anne. It says, our HR department are telling us that we do not need to adhere to the average holiday legislation because it is low risk. We are a large employer, but we do pay overtime and quarterly commissions. Are they correct in saying it would be low risk? 
uh, and not uh, not to make holiday pay on average earnings. I'm probably slipping slightly into the legal disclaimer we discussed at the start of the show here in the advice that we give. Um, so I'm not sure who to hand this out to. Probably give a similar response to myself. But I'll come to you on this one, Richard. Um, no, they're completely wrong. It's it's <laughs> it's the rule. The rules are the rules under the Employment <laughs> Rights Act. It will only take one employee to, um, I guess, push the boat on this one. Um, but also the bigger issue for employers, especially after the Brazil case, is if they have been using 12.07%, there could be back calculations due. And that's a really important area as well. So no, it is very, very important. Um, and it's certainly not something that you can push to one side. I think most people would agree. What I'm going to say here then is remember, everyone gets a copy of this recording at the end of the show. So by all means, use that response from Richard. Send that to your HR team. Remind them just how important it is. It's not you saying it. It's an expert panel on payroll questions. I'm reminding you that it's the law and that's what you need to do. There's uh, probably 20, yeah. between 20 and 30 articles on the whole subject, probably in the last six months yeah. alone. Um, so if they want some yeah. reference, it's really not that hard. Just look up Leslie, Leslie Brazil. And you'll find plenty of support, shall we say, I think. That's what we're here for. Yeah. Expert panels give people reassurance. Go on, Simon. Yeah, I think the challenge is uh, individually, uh, you're quite right. It's a problem because uh, the, an individual has to make a claim within three months of the underpayment. And then that's linked going back to two years. So at the moment, it's an IT route. However, as Richard's suggesting, the unions know about this. In fact, their barristers were present in the case. So if you've got unionized and you're saying you're a large employer, uh, if the unions get hold of it, you'll have a collective case against the company. That leads to other activity. And we are seeing that increasingly. They catch you one thing, they'll catch you on the lot. National minimum wage will be another area, they'll start to catch you. And also, it's an element of thinking about the future. So at the moment, national minimum wage is policed by Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs. They have, what I'm going to say, ultimate power almost and it's criminal in relation to national minimum wage so the bosses are potentially facing criminal sanction and a criminal record generally those uh, crimes are committed by companies as opposed to individuals but individuals could be named that is the future of holiday pay because the government have approved and are going ahead with what they call the single enforcer we don't know when it could be next year it could be 24 it could be 25 but the enforcer is on their way. When the enforcer is on their way and in power, you only need one person to complain. Now, at the moment, if one person takes you to the industrial tribunal, the ruling relates to that one person. If one person takes you to the enforcer and they come in and find something, that person may actually be okay, but they'll enforce it for everyone else that isn't. So that's the potential risk that's heading with HR departments that need to wake up to is actually this could be just a, a someone who's out to cause problems, but actually everything is OK. But we found 200 other people that aren't. You have to pay them now and a penalty. And that's the potential future risk. There you go. I'm going to throw that up. Can and I just say... part. Very nice. Go on, uh, Andy. Yes. Oh, you got. Yeah. That's going to apply to the pensions as well, because if you're underpaying holiday pay, you're underpaying pensions. And if you aren't paying the right amount of holiday pay and it's got to be backdated, that means you're going to have to backtrack 
to what should have been paid in that week when they went on a holiday and it, they might therefore be automatically enrolled at an earlier date and then you'd need to look at all the pension contributions from that earlier date of automatic enrollment. So you're going to be read it, so do it right. So start to put in the April 20 holiday calc and get those calculations correct. Because if someone whistleblows to us, we'll do the same thing. If they say my holiday pay is wrong and I should have been automatic enrolled, had I been paid the, in, the correct amount of holiday pay had I been put into the scheme, we'll say, well, actually, that's probably true for everyone else. Please go point. back to your staging date many years and look to see what what should have been paid or to April 20, which is when the the rules change if you were doing the right thing prior to that. Do you see what I mean? So it's not just all the regulators, chances are, will do something if there's an impact because tax national insurance, et cetera, will be Definitely. wrong as well. Have you ever asked yourself, how can I recruit payroll staff effectively? Please don't give up on your recruitment project just yet. Here at JGA Payroll Recruitment, we appreciate the difficulties associated with attracting, recruiting and retaining top payroll talent. We also understand just how costly a poor payroll hire can be. JGA Recruitment are a niche payroll recruitment agency who will partner with you to resource payroll candidates who will improve both the accuracy and efficiency of your payroll department. Contact us today on 01727 800 377 or visit jgarecruitment.com to find out more. Had a, a nice comment back already saying, thank you, experts. I mean, that's what we're here for. If you've got questions, put them in the chat box. If you've got concerns, this is where we can uh, we can answer your questions in real time. You can get the recording and pass it back on to your HR departments if you need to. I've had a couple of questions from the same individual here. So I'd like to ask the first question. It relates back to that holiday pay. Um, well, we get this a lot in payroll question time. There's definitely still a lot of confusion around this. It says, good afternoon. My question is IT related and was wondering if the software accommodates for the 5.6 weeks AFC calculations for casual hour staff. Secondly, do you have a facility to pro rata holidays for part year joiners who work term time only part time? Okay, um, well, I can only speak for our own software, um, Nick. I can't necessarily speak for others, but can you handle 5.6 weeks entitlement? Yes. And what's the entitlement for casual workers or those that work irregularly if they're under contract? Uh, the entitlement is 5.6 weeks minimum. It's the same for everyone. You, there's no difference. Even if you don't, if you only gave them work for one day and you retain them as an employee for the full year, what's their entitlement? Their entitlement is 5.6 paid weeks of the average and the average would be one day's pay. So you have to pay them for an extra 5.6 days. Uh, that's the requirement of the regulations. It always has been, to be honest, apart from the averaging being the old 12 week averaging. Uh, and again, ignoring zero pay weeks because the law requires you to ignore it. So can software do that? Yes. The challenge is sometimes how employers want to do it. So there's an element of what is the entitlement? And you need to know what the entitlement is. Otherwise, how do you know you've paid 5.6 weeks? So the Bayes guidance on entitlement is what's their entitlement? Their entitlement is 5.6 weeks. What does that mean in days and hours? The Bayes sort of response to that is, who knows, but it has to equal 
5.6 weeks. So you can come up with a basis possibly, but you can't think, well, if I work this out and it comes out with this math and I based it on 5.6 weeks and that gives me 12.07%, which is in effect what the 12.07% did. You know, and it's sort of, well, what did you pay? Does that pay equal 5.6 weeks? Oh, it doesn't. You've broken the law. So whatever you come up with, it has to equal 5.6 weeks. Can um, the SD Work software offer solutions that assist with that? It absolutely can. But the challenge sometimes is um, moving from um, the viewpoint of what the entitlement is, because some are trying to declare it in hours. How do you know what the hours are if they're variable? Uh, some in other, but days is easy, weeks is easy. Hours is easy if they have contract hours. If they don't have any contract hours, hours will not work unless you come up with an average basis. But even then, how do you work out what the entitlement is? Because it keeps on going up and down and the entitlement is fixed. Now, can it deal with proration? So the rules on proration for joining is it's one twelfth. So you're entitled to one twelfth of 5.6 weeks for each month you're employed or part month. So it's not days, it's not hours, it's it's one twelfth. And if you leave, it's then based on one hundred one over three hundred and sixty-five uh, for the days employed in that year, including weekends, including days you don't work. It doesn't matter. Is when did they start? When did they leave? Three over three sixty-five. Now the twelfths are rounded to half days. This, this is where it gets really complicated with employment law. The twelfths are rounded to half days or full days. That's the requirement of the law. Even if you're doing hours, you then have to apply the hours to those days. Um, you can't round it on hours. It's rounded on half day or day. And on uh, levers, it's rounded to tenths of a day. So just be aware of that. The, can the software deal with those sorts of things? Uh, probably, but actually most people don't know that's what they're meant to do. And so we've instructed something else. But can facilities be made that uh, bring that in? Will lots use Excel? Yeah, they will. Uh, the major complication on holiday pay is the holiday pay is for pay up to last Saturday. Okay. So if I take leave today, you're meant to include all my work up to last Saturday. And you may say, well, that's a bit odd because we haven't paid you for last Saturday. And uh, I, I would say, uh, I don't know what your view is, Sam, on this, but I think the Bayes response to that is, not my problem that's your problem yeah and a lot of service providers so payroll professionals working in a bureau environment they will get a fixed amount at the end of a pay period and their client will say pay this so the client may have the weekly data but a lot of bureaus do not have that weekly breakdown in order for them to do the average weekly earning calculation um, and I think a key point to stress is the 12.07% Nick essentially allowed people to accrue annual leave for every hour or every day that they work whereas yeah. that's not the case that's not how the legislation ever wanted to it to work if someone is employed regardless of whether they are working or not you accrue annual leave for every day that you are employed. And that's the key thing to stress. So as Simon said, someone could be on a payroll for 12 months. They've only worked one day. They're still entitled for, to the 5.6 weeks for that year. Great.
Fantastic. That's really clear. And I'm, I'm impressed Simon did all those calculations without scripts. So uh, experts indeed. Well done <laughs> to everybody here. Right. I, I'll be honest, it's hard for me to, to keep up and uh, I, I don't post as payroll. So I, I hats off to everyone that actually does and understands all of that. Um, is there a crystallization period for claiming back pay? Let me come to you for that one, Sam. So don't know if I've interpreted the question correctly, but for claiming back pay. So if an employee was to, to raise this with an employment tribunal and say, my employer hasn't paid me correctly. Simon mentioned this earlier. They've got three months from that underpayment to make a claim. That claim can then be backdated for two years. However, if there is a gap of three months or more between two periods of annual leave that that employee has taken, that two year rolling period stops. So for example, let's say I take annual leave in November and I took annual leave in September, there's less than three months in between those two dates. So both of those instances would need to be recalculated at any back pay owed. But let's say prior to September, I didn't take any annual leave. Um, let's say it was February. Not that anyone would last going from February to September with no annual leave. But let's say there's that, there's that gap of more than three months. My employer would only have to recalculate my November and my September's annual leave because they are connected. So uh, hopefully I interpreted that question correctly and that would be the answer maximum two years. Yeah, and the exception to that, and we've had a case recently, which is the Pimlico plumbers again, they appear regular, don't they? Yeah. Is if you haven't, if you've denied holiday pay altogether, the two year limit doesn't apply. So it then falls under statute limitations. So if someone's taken leave and you paid them nothing, then it's not an underpayment of holiday pay, it's a failure to pay holiday pay. And that's a different claim you paid them nothing so it wasn't the wrong amount it was no amount and that came under the Pimlico plumbers recent case where the Pimlico plumbers attempted to apply the two-year stop and the court disagreed they said that limitation doesn't apply because you paid zero we are going to jump into these uh, festive consideration points on the slide in just a moment but of course this is your show audience so do keep the questions coming in we want to make sure we answer your questions as our first priority coming to you Richard here for the last one for the moment um, I've been asked to gross up a bonus um, payment as part of a settlement agreement to a small number of employees the employees are basic rate taxpayers however the total value of the package will push their monthly earnings into the higher slash additional rate of tax which percentage rate of tax should I use in the gross up calculation no, thanks. Um, well, the applicable rate, the, the applicable yeah. rate, the cumulative earnings at that point. Yeah. You can't. I, you can't say, you know, I have been joined because of very needed today. Um, no, it's applicable to the rate they reach. There is no no rule to say well they would have been at twenty percent, so we'll only charge twenty percent. If the amount takes them into the forty percent threshold, there's a forty percent liability on the income because you're still giving yeah. cash. Money, king, cash is king, as uh, Sam quite rightly said earlier on, basically. Yeah. So, uh, and it, yeah. It's a really complicated calculation, Nick, and it's one that uh, the SD Work solution automatically does for you. 
it's a mixture of 0, 20 and 40 percent and it'll work it out so there's an element of work out what the liability was without it work out what the liability is with the amount and you'll get a tax in an eye and then you in effect have to keep on adding it until it changes by nothing so it can go through a number of iterations and it's called grossing up and you'll come to a value but you may find that your tax liability that you're actually covering an employer may be increasing the monies by 60 70 percent okay and because every uh, time last... you pay it there's a liability sure last one and just I, I really want to get clarity here so apologies i'm gonna i'm gonna bring this up again i want to make sure that all the audience are fully familiar just can someone please explain one more time why if someone only worked for one day it was on the payoff for a full year they would get a full year's allowance so we don't need to holiday here yeah Sam's already answered sure. it, so you can probably say the same statement again about yeah, yeah it, it's about it's about when someone is employed from and to so if someone is employed for a full calendar year they are entitled to a full calendar year's worth of annual leave entitlement <laughs> and in simon's um, example earlier if someone works for one day and their entitlement to annual leave is 5.6 weeks when you take the average earnings you're going to be paying them 5.6 days worth of pay using that average weekly earning criteria so for example, term time only staff in an academic environment, you know, you don't want to be ending their contract at the end of the academic year, make them a lever, bring them back on in September again, because then you've got employment rights issues. Um, you know, it, it's it's unfortunately just one of those things like Richard said to the HR team, it's the law. And unfortunately, it's just yeah. got to be one of those things that are done. And it's the joy of being an employer, right? Yeah. If you want the specific scenario, I was going to say, especially in retail, yeah. um, where they may have staff who just work during the holidays. So they they're from Newcastle, but they're a university in London. Every time they come home, the shop takes them on. But they, because of the aggravation of taking them on and taking them off again, they just leave them on the payroll all year. Well, they're employed for the year, so they are by rights, as Sam quite rightly said, accumulating holiday. It's um, a danger. The individual here has yeah. just said, to be fair, I think it's been an admin error, but we do have someone that has only worked one day and been employed for a full year. Hence, it's a live example. So there we go. Hopefully, we just answered that. Well, let's jump yes. into the slide then. Seasonal workers, new starter checklist, emergency 0T1 codes. Uh, Sam, I wonder if you could give us a bit of an, uh, an overview of what we're referring to here. Yeah, my interpretation of that is if you've got new people joining you, um, over the Christmas period, then you need to be getting them to complete a new starter checklist. If people aren't completing that new starter checklist, then you need to be still ticking statement C within your software, but you'll be applying a zero T tax code on a week one, month one basis. So really you're wanting to get those individuals to be completing a new starter checklist so you can be using the correct tax code for them. Um, that's my interpretation of what that means on the slide, Nick. I don't know if anyone else has got anything to add, Simon. 
Yeah, I think that's correct. Now, the HMRC Chief Digital Information Office is concerned by the number of uh, CE0T1s being returned. There is actually an obligation on the employer, really, to get the starter checklist. Don't wait for P45s. Get every new starter to uh, tick that checklist. Otherwise, they're paying tax on every penny they earn. And lots of these people don't actually owe any tax. Also, that impacts their universal credit claims as well. Uh, which means that actually the state may be paying more than they need to because they've paid tax liability they don't have, which they'll get back. And you could say, well, that's a good thing for them, isn't it? Except taxpayers fund those overpayments. So we're all paying that in our tax rises that we're getting. So there is an element of get it right. Um, so if anybody joins you, you've got to do right to work checks, get the starter checklist get them to ticket. It's their first job, their only job because they've left another or it's a second job. And if it's on a second job, they'd be taxed at BR. So um, I, I think there's examples that uh, they're only actually seeing is that 95% of new starters uh, being received by HMRC are not P45 starters. So there's probably a concern of why and the other aspect is you're probably finding that for some employers, 80% of them, 90% of them have no starter checklist. So the HMRC CDIO office position will be why. And of course, that's critical across Christmas because retail, etc., will be getting tens of thousands of people uh, joining as shop workers or postal uh, fill-ins, etc., across the Christmas period, parcel deliveries uh, to deliver all our presents to us. So get the starter checklist before first payday as well. After first payday is a waste of time. You can't send them on FPS. It doesn't let you. So before first payday, get the starter checklist. Right. I've got a question that's coming for you, Richard, here. Uh, sick pay question. So uh, it's still very festive and we're keeping the festive theme going. We have an employee who is currently off sick. The company, however, closes at Christmas and everyone takes it off and the business isn't actually open. Will, therefore, the employee be able to choose if they get statutory sick pay or holiday pay for this period? Or does the company just go ahead and pay the holiday pay since it's a comp compulsory closure and the employee will be better off for it? Or oh, I think the compulsory closure won't matter here. I think it's the employee's choice. Um, principally, an employee can go on holiday at any point in time during sickness, but the 28 weeks, if they're sick, they're sick. Um, so principally, it's it's not completely, you can't, I I'm, I'm, guess I'm right in this one, that you can't make holiday leave compulsory. Um, or can you when it's contractual? I don't think you can. Um, so I think well, you, the option of the employee. Yeah. An employer can give notice for someone to take holiday, but you can't give notice for someone who's on sick. And you can't enforce holiday on someone who's sick. But if they're agreeable, you can pay holiday. Yeah, yeah, it has to be agreeable. You're, you're better off saying you're no longer sick the day the Christmas holiday starts. And then when it comes back in again, you say you're sure. sick again, right? <laughs> so, yes. Uh, yeah, in sense. effect. So, so generally, uh, sickness during holiday during sickness relates to zero pay periods. So you've exhausted your um, sickness entitlement. But you can't yeah. get SSP and holiday pay. You no. can uh, get one or the other. But you can end it by agreement. But it's mutual agreement. You can't enforce it either way. It's not an obligation either way. It's where both parties agree. Uh, Simon, a question for you that's come in relation to the SD work system in particular, but uh, just some clarification. Um, 
for term time employees, I'm not sure the one twelfth method would work. I normally pro rata over the actual working days for the first year. Would the SD work system be able to accommodate this? The reason being, my question is for pro rata holidays for a new starter that starts mid-year. So would the software calculate this or would it need to be done manually because you said it should be done via the one twelfth method? Well, it depends. The, the payroll won't look after entitlement, but the HR solutions may and they'll do whatever you ask them to do. But uh, the point at the beginning that it's different for term time people is not correct. Term time people are entitled to 5.6 weeks and the entitlement is one twelfth for each month employed. The fact that they don't work in July makes no difference. You still get one twelfth of the annual entitlement or August, I should say depending on whether you're Scottish or, or English. So the question is, would it work on actual day calculation? Does that make sense? It's got no relevance to it, I'll repeat. Okay. Entitlement is how long you're employed. So if you're employed for the full holiday year, entitlement is 5.6, and the proration is on how many months? Okay. okay. It's not about work. It's about how long have you been employed? Okay, super. And uh, last Even but not least, time workers. So this section, do, I mean, do you I agree with that, Sam? I mean, Sam, yeah, I think, yeah, I do completely yeah. agree. Regardless That's... of whether you're working or not, if you're employed, you're, you've got a year's annual leave entitlement of 5.6 weeks. And this is the whole purpose of the Brazil case, really. It wasn't about 1207 because Mrs. Brazil used to get 12 week averaging earnings is about the whole concept of term time workers if they're employed for a year it's 5.6 weeks super fantastic i've had a question that's coming from ben that says should employees treat the 1.6 weeks granted by the uk equally to the four weeks granted by the eu yeah, in regards that's a great to, question yeah in regards to the average weekly earnings you don't have to include the 1.6 weeks you only have to include four weeks to consider overtime bonus and commission payments. However, it doesn't stipulate what days makes up that 1.6 weeks. So it could be that for all the bank holidays, you decide we won't pay the average earnings, we'll just pay the contractual pay for that day. But if you are a company that's open for the bank holidays, you may want to choose another 1.6 weeks that you don't pay that uplift. Always, um, and it goes without saying, employers can pay that extra 1.6 weeks as an average if they so wish. You can always go above and beyond what the legislation stipulates. Just don't break what the legislation says. <laughs> okay, cool. And there's always potential um, risk for the future as well, Nick. So the, the reason they'll state that is the uh, rulings on overtime and commission are European court rulings. So they're a European court justice or European in relation to regulation 13 working time regulations. So you could say it doesn't apply. Now Bayes doesn't say it doesn't apply. The thing is the rulings are not about the additional 13.A regulation earnings. Now if someone took an employer to court on regulation 13a i guess the bays thought is the court may actually rule that that's the same rule for them as well but so far no court has ruled on the 13a 
entitlement. Does that make sense? So most employers would just treat the 5.6 weeks the same. That's what the guidance suggests from Bayes, but the European Court rulings relate to Regulation 13, four weeks. Great. So we're going to jump into the autumn statement. Uh, we can move that slide along. While we wait for that to come across, we've got another. Go on. Uh, I, I just think we're talking about seasonal workers. Obviously, they're going to be employed over Christmas. Well, but you could, as an employer, use postponement to postpone their automatic enrollment assessment yeah. rather than put them into the scheme and then they'd come out straight away because they want to opt out or only get one month's worth of contribution. So postponement could be used um, as a way of delaying the individual being assessed for automatic enrollment um, and it's up to th um, up to maximum three months from their start date um, before you'd have to assess them that's all really just that there's advice on the website you know fantastic let's jump into the autumn statement i'm going to start with a poll here as well and uh, this is really to help dictate where we go with this in the new year particularly as we can see from today lots of questions in around holiday pay in particular uh, what topics would you like us to discuss in the next edition of Power Question Time, which is going to be in January? There is not a December edition, so uh, trying to get the information in now. Uh, EU rulings, minimum wage, holidays, redundancies or other. So while you're putting your answers in there, that will really help us shape the conversation for January. I do have a question that's come in from Beth. Um, we'll ask our panel here. We have a staff member receiving PHI sick payments paid at 60%. The employee has requested holiday payments and HR have agreed to pay their holiday at 40% rather than 100% uh, because PHI is paid by the insurance company. Is this legal and fair? Um, um, I'm happy to answer from what I would have done in uh, from an operational point of view. Um, essentially, if that person is having a holiday pay top up, then they're going to be deemed to be sick and on holiday at the same time. So as long as they're happy to be using two lots of absence entitlement at once. Um, whether it's fair, I, I would say, it, I would say that that's fairly fair. Whether it's legal, you would need to check and you'd need to double check what the stance is from the PHI provider as to whether there's any clause that stop the employer paying a top up couldn't imagine that there would be, but it's always best to double check with the PHI provider. Sounds like sound advice to me. Anything the panel would add or are we good to get to these poll results? No, I'd go along with that, Nick, to a certain extent. It's similar with the CJRS and Coronavirus Job Retention Scheme. When the government were funding 80%, the employer would have had to have topped up to the extra 20 for any periods of holiday. I'm just thinking yeah. that sort of aligns a little bit. Yeah. Super. Fantastic. OK, well, let's have a look at those poll results. Oh, wow. Pretty split here, which is probably a major right, surprise. Redundancies, 30 percent, holiday pay, 28 percent. Not surprised with the questions we've had today. Uh, minimum wage, 18 percent. EU rulings, 23 percent. I've had a comment as well uh, from Evelyn that says, please, please, on the other category, can we do something on salary sacrifice schemes as well? Just to give you all some reassurance. That's a subject there yeah, that we've all discussed uh, externally as well. We're hoping to bring that up into a, a future PQT. So um, any surprises there, uh, Simon? Uh, no, they all sound uh, fairly solid. And I think even some of the elements of the autumn statement may help on uh, one of those items at least, but uh, yeah, and affect the others. Yeah. I agree. The well, let's jump into is quite a common one, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, it is. It is. Let's jump into the autumn statement. Conscious of time. 
Um, we've got a number of things to talk about. Income and inheritance tax thresholds have been frozen for two more years. Dividend allowances have changed, capital gains, increased pensions and benefits. Uh, let's start with Andy. I'm going to bring him into the conversation. Andy, let's talk about the uh, increases to pensions and benefits to begin with. And we'll work uh, from back to front on this one just to pull you in, keep you awake and uh, give us a bit of an update on the pension side of things. Thank you. Um, I'm awake. It's good to know. Um, obviously, yeah, it's good that the triple lock and all those sort of things are being looked into and, and, and effective. Um, so that's good. Obviously, everything else seems to be frozen or continue to be frozen in terms of lifetime allowance, annual allowance. Um, don't know what's going on with the thresholds, automatic enrollment, um, lower, upper thresholds and trigger. Um, I've been in touch with DDP just to find out what it is. Obviously, they've got to do their analysis. There's a new pensions minister now, Laura Trott. Um, so uh, she'll obviously need to get her head around all these sort of things. So hopefully we'll hear soon in terms of what the AE thresholds are. Maybe they'll remain frozen as well as everything else seems to have been done. But that's down to DDP. And as soon as I hear, I'll be communicating those things out to the world of payroll. Um, yes, there, there we go. That's my I'm little bit of it. And I'll come then from left to right. We've got a few things to pick up on here. So I'm going to start with yourself, Richard, if you can take uh, income and inheritance tax and bring us up to speed. Yeah, no. So obviously, in principle, we already had um, a selection of freezes, to use make my own words up today, um, a selection of frozen items, just like Iceland. Um, in respect of uh, Control Store 2016, uh, 2026, sorry, that were already in place. So really, it's just an extension um, of a further two years, um, and it really is that stealth taxation. So principally, I think the government had the option of increasing taxation, which is certainly not something it wanted to do. Um, instead, the statement was always, you won't earn less than you did last year. Um, but the principle now is that there'll be no review in 2026. It's now 2028. And I guess the, the, the big further change was built on the back of the uh, amendment of the primary threshold. So obviously the primary threshold aligned to tax anyway back in July. So it was a very easy decision, I guess, for the uh, Chancellor, therefore, to freeze NI as well. So that's really the key variation. Um, is that NI is now frozen too, where we may well have seen a review or increase in certain thresholds um, and everything now is a further two years on. Um, for me, it's wonderful because it means I don't have to update three quarters of my material every year for about the next four years. Um, but obviously for the individual, the, the stealth taxation is on the grounds that the, the likelihood is in the next five years you'll earn more money but the principle is, is usually you would see that increase to either the personal allowance or the thresholds that would therefore limit the increased taxation on that, which they now obviously won't see. So, Fantastic. I think uh, very well put. Uh, bring it over to yourself then, Sam. There's a uh, dividend allowance has been cut from 2000 to 1000 next year. I wonder if you can bring us up to speed. Yeah, so it's, dividends might be something that not all payroll professionals have to deal with but those that are working especially in a payroll bureau environment within an accountancy firm you may need to know that holistic overview of all the taxes so following on from the inheritance tax the, the dividend allowance is then going to be reducing from 2000 to 1 next year as it shows on the screen and then it's going to half again from 2024 um 
following on from that, it kind of fits that I stick with the capital gains. So the tax reallowances for capital gains will reduce from, again, the values that you can see on the screen. So it's reducing to 6,000 for 23-24. And similar to the dividend, it's halving again for the following tax year. So then it will reduce to 3,000 for 24-25. Fantastic. And the capital gains, CGT annual exemption has been cut from 12,300 to 6,000 from 2023. Simon, I wonder if you can bring us up to speed. Yeah, Sam's just covered that one, Nick, but um, I'm happy to cover the benefit elements because those were, I think, yeah. revealed is it yesterday morning. So SMP yeah. has risen by the 10.1%. So the rate will be 172.48 for payments from the 2nd of April 2023. So SMP up significantly. The other angle is on SSP. Uh, it's slightly different. So I, um, I think it's slightly more than 10.1%, but they'll have used that and rounded it. So the SSP weekly rate is rising to £109.40 from the £99.35. I don't think we've received the daily table confirmations because they do some funny roundings on it, don't they, yeah, at times? About an extra 2p over 10.1, Simon. It's, uh, it, exactly. Looking... Yes. It's not quite the same, is it? So it's a little bit more than 10.1% on the SSP, although it's been criticised for many years of being so low and not keeping pace with, um, well, certainly national minimum wage rises or anything else, is it? So it's been seen as a bit of a paltry sum, especially for uh, during the COVID period where people weren't getting CJRS or were dependent on uh, sickness pay that uh, they felt hammered. Right, and before we jump into the um, the last bit of point on this, so there was um, just want to remind people if they weren't, you know, maybe they've made changes. Uh, the IR thirty five changes that were announced yeah. have been reversed. I wanted to Simon if you just make sure there's pure clarity on where we stand with IR thirty five. I wonder if you just bring us up yes. to speed with that as well if you can. Well, in out, in out, yeah, take, take it, it all about. about. Yes, yeah. uh, certainly. So, so yes, uh, there probably was very heavy lobbying. Uh, because there's uh, quite a heavy lobby group on IR35 hated because, of course, these people pay more tax than anybody else. Um, whereas in reality, I guess it's been discovered that actually they don't and they're probably uh, benefiting from the dividend allowance as well. So, um, yes, uh, Liz and Quasi announced that IR35 would go uh, and remove the burden and promptly uh, within days, Jeremy Hunt announced that it wasn't. Uh, so it's back in. Uh, so it stays. IR35 applies to private business with 250 or more employees. If you've got someone that looks like a worker, um, uses your equipment, etc., uh, but you're paying them as a contractor, then maybe they're a bit of a deemed employee and, uh, and uh, they're not been declaring their income uh, is the historic position. I'm being, saying this all with a bit of tongue in cheek, but uh, they're probably you're probably paying them 80 to 100,000 pounds. And for some reason, they're declaring to HM Revenue and Customs that they only earn 12,570 pounds a year. So where's the other money going? Uh, and uh, therefore, they're making you as uh, the engager of that contractor uh, to collect tax and national insurance on the payment, minus any uh, expenses or VAT. Um, so that's continuing. It's not gone away, it's staying. Right. And a freeze on national insurance contributions, Richard. Yes. Yeah, so as has already been the case of taxation, um, it's just moved into national insurance as well. And as I said, really, the tipping point for that was July. 
I guess there is a small positive, and that is that the lower earnings limit will stay at £123 rather than going up annually. So principally, it would mean that more people over time will go into um, eligibility uh, for things like sick and parental. Um, but again, you know, we're we're in a world where principally through stealth or not, there will be more NI liability purely on the grounds that income's increased. Um, I guess the big variation is obviously the removal of the health and social care levy. Um, the bigger winner, therefore, is obviously the um, type C. Um, so those who are working after state pension age won't be coming into that. Um, but otherwise, it, it, it now becomes like for like in relation to its impact through ta the tax freeze. Yep, we've had a, a question that's come in as well. Do we know when statutory neonatal leave and pay may come into force? Um, yeah, no. consultation. I mean, I think meetings in a week or two, isn't it? But uh, not before 24. Not before 24. Okay. Uh, it's, it, it's, not, it's uh, certainly been passed through, hasn't the initial phases, but the actual statutory payment bits have still yet to be done. So the government have voted, well, it was a private member's bill. That's actually been passed. So it now moves to future stages, but I think it's still at least a year or two away. So even when it was originally announced, it was never going to be before 2024 anyway. Um, it then became part of the employment bill that we've been waiting for since, was it 2018? So, yeah, it's a, it's a moving target, I think. Yeah. Fantastic. I was say similar, Andy, though, with the changes to uh, auto enrolment rules as well, or has that got more set now, e.g. the removal of the trigger and also the, re the reduction in age? Uh, we're still waiting on DDP to let us know when. Um, but yeah, so mid 2020s, so 24, 25, 25, 26, 26, 27, run about then. Um, and will it be all done in one go or will it be done in stages? You know, um, so wait here. I'd, as my understanding is that DDP will consult before it goes ahead and it has to be a pensions bill. So it'll have to go through an act of parliament to reduce the lower threshold to to be removed as opposed to going to nil. So when you see a pensions bill in parliament, that will also give an indication perhaps that something's coming up. But it won't be uh, all of a sudden. It will will be fully aware of when it's going to be. So there'll be plenty of time to put things in place. Just, just thinking, Andy, I guess they could do a statutory uh, instrument which just sets the lower as zero could they so not remove it just set it at zero in theory yeah and then, the way it's been spoken about um it would be removed right which you know has implications in terms of no entitled workers anymore everyone will have an employer contribution etc when it goes to nil um so yeah um, wait and see, really. But yes, yeah, so, so whether or not DWP will, for instance, consider reducing the lower threshold. They froze it last April. Um, or whether they'll keep it frozen. But obviously, if it went in one go, then that would be, for a monthly person, it'd be £520 now becomes pensionable, where it wasn't previously when you've got a scheme that only takes contributions from 520 the lower limit upwards. So the employer will, you know, there's budgeting to be done, the employer costs. But the government don't just do things 
without analysing everything and, you know, so Treasury and everyone else gets involved as well as just DDWP. So there will be a suitable period of time for us to know what's going on. Um, I've had a, a question come in about next year, probably following on from our poll. Um, will we be tackling the energy initiatives that were announced by the Chancellor for 23-24 in the next edition of Payroll Question Time, including the cost of living payments for people on household means-tested benefits? Uh, pensioner households are going to receive an additional £300 cost of living payment and disability cost of living payments as well. Um, I don't know, that's not my area of expertise, but um, Simon? Um, I missed that. Um, apologies there. Not, not to be answered now, but for the new year, will we be uh, bringing up the, um, we will be able to discuss the energy initiatives discussed by the Chancellor and how that impacts the cost of living payments? Oh, yeah, certainly. I think there's an element of waiting for details, but the April change will uh, drop. So there is an intention to carry on. Um, but yeah, we'll see where that goes. Add that to the list. Well, let's have a look at some of our hot topics. One of them we've already covered, which is in relation to the IR35 appeal cancellation. Um, I don't know if there's any more information I want to give on the latest tax, NI and minimum wage uh, bullet point we've got here. I think that was um, there's a few changes we haven't mentioned yet from Autumn's statement, including yeah. some of the new tax brackets and things. So, Simon, I'll let you take the floor. Uh, sure. So minimum wage is probably a significant one and may have more effect than some people think. I guess it depends on what the wage levels are. But uh, the national living wage rate has gone up 9.7 percent to £10.42. Uh, and of course, the intention is in a, by a couple of years time that the national living wage will drop to 21. Well, they're kind of doing that already. So the 21, 22 year old rate has risen to £10.18. So it's now only, uh, you know, 24 pence difference, is it? Um, uh, so they've raised that by 10.9%. So rather than just bring in a drop to 21, they're increasing the 21 significantly to catch up. So they're getting closer and closer. What's the impact and what's the relevance of that? And what's the consideration? Actually, I think a lot were caught out this year. I know it's been a challenge for some of our, our client base is the fact that they're operating uh, smart pensions, cycle schemes, childcare, all sorts of other flexible benefit schemes. And you can't sacrifice below national minimum wage. So now there may not be any cushion to pay for those sorts of things, flexing that people have done. So what are you going to do? So it's a consideration of that which consequently means that the employer is no longer saving the 13.8% either on those contribution values for those benefit provision. So you're going to stop them or are you going to raise, uh, and I've seen a number of questions on social media, some of the others may have done, but it's sort of, well, you know, I'm a manager and I hold the keys and now if I'm not available and it goes to a staff member, then I've been putting up to 1042, they get a pound extra for holding the keys temporarily whilst the manager or supervisor isn't there and I only get uh, £11, pounds, uh, that means they get paid more than I do. And there's element of, so my employer should pay me more. So you get those differential arguments and there's element of, there's absolutely no legal requirement to pay you any more at all because you're above minimum wage. But, uh, but you can see where all these things go and it leads to disquiet amongst the workers and workforce. And you may get those cases where actually those allowance top-ups actually make it better off than the management. 
Um, so see, salary sacrifice is the big one. I think flexible benefit yeah. schemes, especially around pensions, Andy, as well, is that uh, mm. actually this rise may change the nature of employer contributions on salary sacrifice. Yeah, it's a big rework. You've got to look at it very carefully, haven't you? An instrument of wage is not straightforward either. It's not just a simple hourly thing. You've got to work out the period thing. So it's, it's yeah, you've got to convert people to normal contributions. Yeah. Super. And uh, back to you, Sam, uh, the permanent easement for payday on your FPS. Yeah, so I can't remember exactly what date this was brought in, but essentially at Christmas, most companies, most employers will bring their payday forward so people get paid prior to Christmas Day. HMRC made it a permanent easement that people can do that, but the key thing that employers need to be mindful of is, for example, let's say your contractual payday is the 25th of the month, but this year you're deciding to pay on the 19th. On your FPS, you must report the payment date as the 25th of December. It must be the contractual pay date, not your early pay date for the Christmas period. Um, the reasons for that is it can have a huge knock-on effect to universal credits. So it's really, really important that employers remember to report their contractual pay day, even if they are paying earlier for Christmas. Fantastic. And last, we had a little comment here, which links right back to our first slide on Christmas festivities. I'll come back to you, Richard, briefly. Uh, I would expect some employers have provided a cost of living payment to take priority over Christmas gifts. More of a statement rather than a question, but probably something you're seeing as well, I'd imagine, Richard. Yeah, it's, it's very, well, it's very, it's been very common for about the last four months. Um, employers are doing whatever they feel they should do. But employers have got to realise that a cost of living payment is cash. I guess that's the really key yeah. aspect here. So somebody's got to pick up the tax and nick um, in the class one environment. Um, and also it's something else that we obviously came into rather than just blanket bombing payments to people, understanding the effects of those payments on everybody who works for you. We mentioned earlier on people on universal credit um, who may not really want their salary to increase potentially um, because the impact could be losing all their benefits. So it's not something that can be, I guess, reactively um, jumped in on. You need to consider your demographic. You need to consider what you're actually giving. You need to consider the effect that that's going to have on liability, I think is uh, really the key here. Right. And we've gone full circle. I'm sorry, go on, Simon. You're going to add a point? Yeah, and I think it's just an understanding that on we talked about the benefit implications. The universal credit entitlement values will increase by 10.1% from April next year. So there are Excellent. universal credit increases. Yeah. To reassure everyone in the new year, we will be talking about salary sacrifice. We're going to be talking about minimum wage, holidays, redundancies, EU rulings and more. So lots stay tuned for in January. We've had over 1,100 people this year join us for payroll question time. Been a fantastic 2022. It seems too early to be welcoming you in 2023, but that's when we'll next be seeing you on PQT. So I wish everyone who's on the show today watching us live or watching us pre-recorded or post-recorded just to say a huge wonderful and well great wishes for a wonderful Christmas and a wonderful 2023 new year and a huge thanks to our panel Richard George, Sarah Sullivan, 
Simon Parsons and of course Andy Nichols and I wish you everyone a great festive break any questions of course put them into uh, the the chat box before we leave and we'll try and answer those later on. we've got a couple of few minutes we'll leave that chat box open uh, but otherwise we look forward to bringing you all the next pair of question time in January thanks everybody Thank you so much for tuning into the Payroll Podcast with Nick Day of JGA Recruitment. If you need help with a current payroll vacancy, then please get in touch with Nick and his team. All contact details can be found in the episode notes. In the meantime, to make sure you never miss a future episode, please subscribe to the show through any of your favorite podcast channels. Till next time. <laughs>